Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following program has language that might be offensive, depending on your definition of might and offensive and your understanding of the language. It's Thursday, February 3rd, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. CNN had the latest news of descent into ignominy for the man we once called America's mayor. This story will blow your mind. The subpoenaed, disgraced former mayor of New York, Rudy Giuliani, whose actions contributed to not one but two impeachments, who vigorously and publicly worked to overturn an election. Married a cousin, yelled at a ferret owner, performed in drag in SNL, mistook a landscaper for a luxury hotel. No, none of those. Turned up as a contestant on a game show. The Fox show, The Masked Singer, prompting two judges to storm off the set in protest. That's the resistance we've been talking about. And it was all anyone could talk about. Jake Tapper on CNN. Who unmasked these Trump advisors? And and is it possible that any of this unmasking was being done for political reasons instead of for legitimate ones? Rand Paul weighed in, getting some details wrong. Essentially, when you unmask someone, you're illegally listening. You're illegally having a wiretap on their conversation. No, I think Fox got all the judges and contestants to sign waivers. In the end, former President Trump, he spoke for all of us. The unmasking is a massive, uh, it's a massive thing. It's, uh, I just got a list. It's, it's, who can believe a thing like this? Now, if you remember the arcana of Intel Committee's past, that was part of a concocted row overexposing or unmasking an American as part of the Mueller investigation. The unmasking never really happened. It was just the indignity of the day, ultimately resulting in no charges filed by prosecutor John Durham, who was tasked with looking into it. Will the latest unmasking be a similarly evaporating kerfuffle? Only time. Well, yeah, it will. It definitely will. Next week, I don't know, Salil Moonfry will be revealed as the mutant asparagus or whatever, or Eric Estrada was the flower pot. Do you believe it? Let's move on. On the show today, I spiel about a prominent purveyor of the message that the pandemic is waning and the evidence points to the idea we can soon start getting back to normal. While this fellow, David Leonhardt, has his critics, it's not like anyone's likening him to Mengele, except they are. It's eugenics. It's always eugenics. But first, Jeff Maurer was a writer for the HBO program Last Week Tonight with John Oliver for six years. He won five Emmys. And he loved being a key player on that staff that was creating material both funny and important. But it began to feel a little stale. 
And when he suggested topics that strayed just a bit from progressive orthodoxy, he was met with a chill. As you'll see, Jeff is a reasonable guy. He's not claiming he's Diogenes, but he's been to the salt mines of the late night universe and came out with a little bit of hypertension. He has an analysis worthy of consideration and a podcast and Substack called I Might Be Wrong, Jeff Maurer up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Jeff Maurer is a former EPA employee, but that's not the interesting thing. He's also a former stand-up comedian and was a senior writer for John Oliver's show on HBO. He now has a Substack and a podcast because it's the law. The podcast and Substack are named I Might Be Wrong. Brilliant cover art. Very bright yellow. Draws my attention. And sometimes sometimes I find he's just a liar because I read his stuff and I'm like, this guy's not wrong. Hey, Jeff, welcome to the gym. Hey, thanks for having me. It's usually a little later in the podcast that somebody accuses me of being a liar. Yeah. Thanks for getting that away right out front. <laughs> There's the uh, enough rope to hang yourself, but I've done the research and you've already provided it in your past. And so what I'm saying is I was, for instance, reading your analysis of the Voting Rights Act. And I'm like, it's odd that I would have to come across this from a comedian and a John Oliver writer. Just the most perfect distillation of my thoughts exactly. Somewhat of a verboten thought, which is like, of course it would be better to pass the Voting Rights Act, but in terms of imperiling the whole democracy, maybe that's been oversold. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, Democrats, and I always refer to Democrats as a we, I'm on the left side of the spectrum. Uh, yeah, we got out over our skis on that one. Yeah, there's like, there's the true thing, which is that it's good when it's easy to vote. And you can, you know, imagine some ways in which there's a possible democratic advantage to a higher turnout. Although one of the points I made in the article is like the evidence behind the old high turnout benefits, Democrats, low turnout benefits, Republicans theory, like the evidence behind that is pretty thin at that at this point. I don't really know if that's true. Um, so, yeah, I'd like it to be easier to vote, but I also don't think that democracy is about to wither and die um, any more than it's about to wither and die. Yes. No, no, no. I should be clear. It's going to wither and die. It's definitely yes. going to wither and die. <laughs> Right. So let's say you had this idea and wanted to, you know, pitch it for uh, a show like Oliver, just a show like that. It's not OK. It's not in the realm of, ooh, you can't say that. But it's also not in the realm, I think, of, OK, this is what you'd expect Stephen Colbert, John Stewart or John Oliver's point to be. How do you navigate that? Uh, well, I mean, the way I always navigated it was I would just, you know, pitch it and see. And mm -hmm. um, sometimes you're pleasantly surprised. Other times, I mean, there are other things that I basically tried to get on the show the entire six years that I was there. Tried to get GMOs on the show the entire six years I was there. Never did. Um, was your take that GMOs are pretty okay for us? 
there are certain things you simply can't know. But we do have, at this point, about 25 years of experience with GMOs. And the scientific consensus is these things are pretty darn safe. That nuclear power was another one I pitched from time to time, never got it on. Now, the fact that you don't get it on, like, that's not weird. You pitch stuff all the time that doesn't go on the show. I mean, the pitch to appears on the show ratio is, I don't know, six to one, eight to one, something like that. So, right. I mean, I would always just pitch it. And I felt like John was he, he was generally pretty good about encouraging, you know, a diversity of thought. You know, if I pitched nuclear power and somebody else really didn't like nuclear power, I was not going to be cast out. You know, I was not going to become the office pariah or anything like that. Um, but, you know, one thing that did bother me, like I said, I was there for six years. You know, you break it down. That's almost 200 shows. That's something around the neighborhood of 500 segments or something like that. It did bug me a bit that we didn't not a bit, a lot mm -hmm. of those 500 segments. We didn't ever have one that didn't reflect what you would call, you know, the expected lefty talking point point of view. And so why wasn't there an appetite for that? I think there was an appetite for that. Do you mean in the audience or within the room? In the audience, in the audience. The, I think the, so the, the, tru the truth is, I think, so, you know, the show started in 2014. I can tell you the first two years, or especially the first year, it was like, what is this thing? <laughs> you know, how, how is this not the daily show? And we figured out uh, the way that it's not the daily show is that we do these long form segments. Okay, so that was the first year. And then near the end of year two, we're like, all right, now what? What's the next stage of this thing and then trump showed up and that was the answer to the question for the next two years there's all sorts of shit we had to deal with and i do <laughs> phrase it that way we had to deal with the man made himself impossible to ignore so you had trump stuff in seasons three and four um making the show go and then i think near the end of season four we reached that point again where it was kind of okay now what because you know now we're talking about it's like about 2018 now what what's the next evolution of the show I really believe we had an audience that was growing up with us. And I 100% believe we could have done a piece on, you know, any, any issue that doesn't have any particular ideological alignment, mm -hmm. like nuclear power, like GMOs, any number of other things. I, I think we could have done the transports one and said, this is what we know. Good night. I mean, most people, I would say that most people listening to this show who have watched John Oliver like John Oliver, and maybe they don't like him totally, and maybe they find a flaw here and there. And most people listening to this show and maybe your show would have liked to have seen him tackle the, let us just take the nuclear uh, power argument. And but is, you, you got to understand the pressure to not basically rock the boat, to not, mm -hmm. and this is, you know, a, this is just a good human interaction practice to not show up as the new guy and go, let me tell you everything you've been doing wrong. I'm going to set this show on a path to success. That's not what you want to do. You want to pitch the stuff that you know has worked. So there is kind of this internal pressure to, you know, even if your views, your thoughts on what the show should be and where it should go are a little bit different than what's been done, give them what's give them more of what's been working. Right. Ease your way in. And and I think that narrows the scope of what shows up on TV a little bit. Right. So everyone gets hired to be to replace the existing mu musician in the band or if it's the first year on the show, like uh, like the John Oliver show to comprise the band. But you're a player in the band. After five years, though, you may have some ideas of your own songs or some solos that you want to take. And then, therefore, 
I guess the show can either accommodate it, the band, to use the metaphor, can either grow in a new direction, or it can give you the message, you either play this music or you get out. And did that happen to you? Um, it, it, it wasn't that crude. Um, the, the metaphor is a pretty good one. I, I sometimes, when people say what happened, I sometimes say I was in a band that broke up. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, there was a lot, there was a lot of shit, but yes, it was, that was certainly part of the atmosphere. Yes. It was kind of that. Were you John Lennon or were you George Harrison? No, I was the guys in Credence Clearwater who were okay. like, we want to do our own shit. The non-Fogarty guys? <laughs> They're like, we want to write our own songs. And John Fogarty finally goes, fine, make an album of your songs. And it's a bomb. <laughs> I'm not George. There's no traveling Wilburys in my mm-hmm. future. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, you did mention you were in the EPA or you wrote for the EPA. You were the environmental expert. Uh, tell expert me. Is, expert is going way too far. But yes, what I worked for the EPA. What did you do for the EPA? Site inspections? Uh, no, I was a speechwriter. Okay. Uh, I got hired. At first, I was a very low level writer, editor guy, and then I eventually became a speechwriter. I guess being a writer for the EPA in some way informed your comedy, or at least, you know, if you're thinking about something for eight hours a day, somehow those thoughts are going to make their way into comic form if you're also performing comedy at night. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Though it was always... I mean, did you have a lot of dioxin material? (laughs) I did not, because Uh here's the the problem. And it it was weird because, you know, I'm a political guy. It's what I studied in school. Um, you know, a very, very, very brief career on the Hill before I ended up at EPA. But no, I never had much uh, politics in my stand up. And I always say the reason is the second you start talking about politics, you lose half the audience because it's like you started talking about hockey or something. Mm-hmm. And they're just like, I don't follow that. I'm not into this anymore. So you lose half the audience. And then if you have any kind of viewpoint, anything except, you know, the most anodyne like, hey, you know, George W. Bush isn't that smart. Anything sharper than that, you're going to lose half of the half. So now you're down to talking to a quarter of the audience, and that's just a no-go in stand-up. So no, I didn't have a ton of uh, a ton of political material. The most crossover there was is I would always do the, the EPA holiday parties. They would always have me do stand-up at those. <laughs> I would go from office to office and do, the, uh, do stand-up at those. So if you were um, to create a show that could... Not would, not would be the thumb in the eye from the jump show, but could have a little more interesting off the reservation takes. How would you go about it? Is it just in hiring or how else? Well, this is a funny question because I'm trying to develop this show at this very moment. So <laughs> you're sort of jumping this pitch that I'm hoping to take to networks very soon. But hell, I'll just do it on a podcast. What a, what do a it. perfect way to practice a pitch. Uh, I've, so I, I'm in the independent media space. I'm very amused by independent media. I think it's, I think it's both great. I mean, I'm on a podcast right now that's independent media. I write a sub stack that's independent media. I think it's great. But then there's also a lot of clownishness in that world. Mm-hmm. So I want to do a show called Two Complete Morons, which is based on these YouTube shows that are basically two complete morons. And the benefit there would be you have a right wing moron, you have a left wing moron, you get to make fun of idiocy, whatever bad take you hear on Twitter and is going to show up in independent media. You can make fun of that, whether it comes from the right or the left. Most of what comedy is, is pointing at shit and going, that's dumb. 
So why would you ever leave anything on the table, is my opinion. Maybe you could have an element where the show is 15%, sorry, 50% <laughs> of what you do, but the rest of it is the people outside the show, like a smart, a smart, <laughs> savvy female producer who's just doing this all the time. Ugh, I'm slapping her head. <laughs> These two morons. And the more moronic they are, the bigger their ratings go and the more YouTube views they get. I do like the idea of a producer who hates the show. <laughs> I might have to take that and uh, pay you out somehow. I do like that idea. I have thought of, a, you, you know, you're bringing up like, why would they be on this show that they call two complete morons? My answer <laughs> to that question is they just call it TCM. Oh, it stands, one, one of the characters is named Cynthia Vagpageant. I have that name. That's a hard, that's non-negotiable. Okay. Cynthia Vagpageant. And her, this is the left-wing moron. Her deal is that she got fired from MSNBC and just has a vendetta against MSNBC now. But anyway, after she got fired, she started an independent YouTube show called The Cynthia Memo, TCM. Mm -hmm. And then later she hired the other guy. So in, in their world, it's just TCM. And they say, welcome to TCM. They don't say welcome to two complete morons. Right. So I see it as I got the name. I see the, the female uh, anti-MSNBC vag pageant character, an Elizabeth Banks type. Oh, yeah, she's very funny. Right. And then now the right-wing moron would be, describe him or her. It, it would be a him. The, the idea with this character is that he is a descendant of the, the Daewoo family in Korea, that, you know, uh -huh. once the second largest company in South Korea. And he's basically just like the black sheep party boy rich kid who's uh, from that family who has been living in the U.S. And his whole thing is he's just incredibly lazy and he doesn't really care about anything. He's his viewpoint is conservative, but he's not he doesn't feel it deeply. His backstory is he got big on Instagram as being like a thirst trap. Good abs. Yes. And look, it's Joel Kim Booster. Um, <laughs> and if I can't get him, I'll probably have to adjust the character a little bit. But his thing is when COVID rolled around, he started ranting about masks and those rants got huge in conservative media. So he is suddenly huge in conservative media world, even though he doesn't really feel it very deeply. Mm hmm. I look forward to uh, not just this show that might never be, we know how development goes, but also reading the Substack, listening to the podcast. I Might Be Wrong is the name of the podcast. I was searching for it in uh, the good podcast search engines. It's hard if you just search for your name. I think like uh, former the former Twins catcher just keeps showing up instead of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he fucked me. Joe, Joe Maurer fucked me, although I spell mine M-A-U-R-E-R. -E he doesn't know the first star. And then, of course, I named the Substack after a Radiohead song. So if you search I Might Be Wrong, you get the Radiohead song. It's, I Might Be Wrong. Then again, your backup choice of OK Computer, also stupid. <laughs> so Jeff Maurer, the I Might Be Wrong Substack and podcast. I really enjoyed this talk, Jeff. Thanks very much for having me. And now the spiel. I like David Leonhardt as a person. He seems nice. I've interviewed him before, but I don't mean as a person. I mean as a vector of contagion, scientific information contagion, because as an important columnist for the New York Times, his writing on COVID offers lots of deep analysis and welcomed insight, not welcomed by all. 
There is, I'd like to recommend, a pretty threadbare website called omicron-variant.org. And it has links to what it calls the four best COVID writers going. It calls Derek Thompson indispensable, Zenep Tefeki the best, Ed Yong as writing with authority, and David Leonhardt as, quote, great. Read those four, I say, a Zwick here, an Osterholm there, a dusting of Twiv, and you're good. I mean, you got to be really deep on the inside to get those references. Also, I will have to admit that I may have made that site when Omicron broke out because, you know, some people process distressing news by making websites. So among the people on that website, the authoritative omicron-variant.org, Leon Hart is the least alarmist or the most likely to call out dire predictions as being overly pessimistic. Apparently, this has engendered much bad will among some faction of the COVID passionate. I guess you could say the anti-COVID brigade. But I never really knew there were legions of Leon Hart lambasters until he went on The Daily a week ago. So first, he noted that Omicron is so transmissible, it's becoming really hard to avoid, something all government officials are saying. We might just have to live with it. So that that's the first thing. The second thing about Omicron is that it tends to be milder than earlier versions of the virus. It can still be severe for people who are not vaccinated and for a small number of people who are immunocompromised or very elderly. But for the vast majority of people, if you are vaccinated and you get Omicron, you are not going to get very sick. Which is true and not particularly controversial. And as you heard, Leonhardt did acknowledge that the elderly and immunocompromised are vulnerable. At least that's what I heard him saying. But here is a tweet by Dr. Cecilia Tomari. She interpreted his remarks as saying, quote, for Leonhardt, the deaths of those who may not be fully protected is apparently acceptable. He claims that these situations are rare, immunocompromised people and the elderly. In fact, we're talking about millions of people, and no, this is not acceptable. Well, that's not what he said. I don't think David Leonhardt, who's won a couple Pulitzer Prizes in economics, would say that there aren't a million people over the age of 75. He doesn't disagree that... There are millions of people at stake. He doesn't think that it's acceptable. The reason I quoted Dr. Tomori is not the technique of creating a straw man out of an outlier of a quote. No, Tomori was cited by an article in Politico called The New York Times Polarizing Pandemic Pundit. Everyone's polarizing to someone else on the internet. But I was interested in understanding the breadth of the Leonhardt criticism. The depth, I got, a, I got a good handle on. So in this piece, writer Joanne Kennan writes, over the last few months, there's been a long simmering critical conversation among public health experts about Leonhardt's take and his outsized influence. It's become more audible. All right, let's air these audible criticisms. She quotes one physician off the record as saying that a majority of Leonhardt's columns downplay risks. No specifics are provided. She quotes another critic as saying of his writing, it's head exploding. One exhausted emergency physician told Politico, bonkers. That's, that's the whole quote from this unnamed source. No specifics. There are three people quoted on the record. One's an emergency physician who said that the critics are emergency physicians and infectious disease specialists across specialties across the country. Okay, he's just describing that there are a lot of critics. What are the criticisms? We still don't know. But we do have this on-the-record criticism by a professor of emergency medicine at Northwestern who says, this guy's name, Seth Truger, and he says, there's no stark dichotomy of who is vulnerable and who is not. 
he's alleging that Leonhardt is saying there is a stark dichotomy and we could figure out who's vulnerable and only worry about them. The doctor is saying there's a lot of people who are vulnerable and no one is really sure exactly what comprises vulnerability. But Leonhardt doesn't say anything otherwise. I'm a dedicated reader. I never inferred that's what he thinks because thinking that would be pretty stupid that there's a, a big dichotomy. You either are vulnerable or you're not vulnerable. There's a birthday, you blow out the 65th candle, all of a sudden you're vulnerable. That's a silly, really stupid thing to think. Leonard doesn't think it. Traeger, I wondered if he had other critiques and online on Twitter, he took issue with a previous Leonhardt column and he highlighted this quote of Leonhardt's. COVID appears to present less risk than some other daily activities among Americans under 17, fewer than 500 have died of COVID since the pandemic began. Many more, a few thousand every year, die in vehicle crashes. Traeger said, well, that 500 number isn't right. He found two alternative numbers. One was 520 deaths. The other from actual death certificates was 416, but he says that's probably an undercount. He summarizes, Traeger does, his whole point about being upset with the comparison to auto deaths and 500 deaths of those under 17 by saying 500 child deaths is a lot especially when death is far from the only burden from COVID. Same thing with vehicle crashes, by the way. And it's a pretty big addition to the typical 15 to 20,000 deaths. And finally, kids aren't supposed to die very much. Then there's Dr. Tamari, quoted in the Politico column as saying, to argue that we should just get on with life because boosted individuals like himself face relatively low personal risk of death from the virus misses so much. The New Republic in a piece also quoted Dr. Tomari, accusing Leonhardt of the sin of both sizing Republicans and Democrats' attitudes towards COVID. Tomari is quoted in the New Republic as saying, disturbingly, at one point he, Leonhardt, highlighted that really only the immunocompromised and elderly are not fully protected after vaccination, as if these impacts on these people were acceptable. That is a eugenic argument, end quote. That was the New Republic's pull quote. That is a eugenic argument. On Twitter, Tamari unleashed a long thread which contained sub-threads. Hers was 14 tweets long. There were two other threads in there that were each 14 tweets long. She cited just about every population that could be considered vulnerable, the homeless, prison population. She linked to an NPR report about two 11-year-old boys who have MEPAN syndrome, an incredibly rare neurological disorder with 30 known cases worldwide. Okay, but these accusations of eugenics or this task of listing the many different ways a person could be immunocompromised or vulnerable, they don't rebut Leonhardt's point. I don't mean they're weak or inaccurate or overblown. I mean, Leonhardt's main thesis on the daily was to analyze how COVID has become a political issue. And while Republicans are certainly full of COVID misinformation, which he says goes into detail about that, some Democrats, he says, and I think the examples we've been talking about bear this out, are being guided by something other than a cool cost-benefit analysis. At what point do we manage to say, okay, I can accept a very small risk that is not a zero risk. Mm -hmm. And I think we see a lot of Democrats struggling with that question because they see these risks, which are not zero, but have gotten very, very small. And they have said, oh, that's still too large for me. It's hard to convince people whose beliefs are so strong I guess Leonhardt would argue whose identities are so intertwined with their opinions that maybe they should 
come off their stances. Leonhardt was offering arguments that they wouldn't want to hear. And he wasn't offering them nastily. He had the calm of a Pulitzer Prize winning economics analyst. But he does say some Democrats have the attitude of, We are going to take this virus absolutely as seriously as we can. We view our masks not only as a form of protection, but as a statement that we're progressives and that we believe in science. And that, I think if you're that kind of person, you would say, that's not me. That's not why I believe we should help the immunocompromised. It's because I'm looking at 2,000 daily deaths and I think the stakes are high. Pretty much plays like uh, they cling to their guns, they cling to their Bibles type dismissiveness. But Leonhardt really isn't trying to patiently speak to a skeptical audience who sees the choice as eugenics or extreme vigilance, right? He's trying to talk to everyone. And I think he is accurately describing a part of the COVID passionate audience. Leonhardt did predict the Omicron surge would bring less death than Delta. It's brought more. He thought breakthrough infections would be more rare than they've been and that immunity wouldn't wane as much as it has. But I know this because he wrote a self-accountability column, which is an odd tactic for all but the most clever of eugenicists. In that column, he writes, there is no shame in being wrong at times, except shaming is the mode of so much of our discourse. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST's assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. He argued that news judgment demanded that we lead with the Rudy Giuliani story. The unmasking and the spying. And to me, that's the big story. Michelle Pesca is in charge of government lobbying for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. If you want to go to Apple and rate the podcast, I like that. I've been reading the reviews. Oomperu, Depru, Duperu, and thanks for listening.